This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with media and advertising investment banker Terry Kawaja about how new buyers like AT&T and Verizon have entered into the M&A space, the future of addressable TV, and why ad tech companies have had a rough time in the public markets. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm here with Jack Marshall. Jack, how are you? I'm great, Steve. So we have a a media and advertising podcast, but this is the first time we're joined by anyone who is actually on Mad Men. This is is very exciting. (laughs) Uh, Terry Kawaja, uh, he's a media, advertising, and technology investment banker. He's the founder and CEO of Luma Partners. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, guys. So you're you're, uh, a specialist in all things uh, digital media and... Your firm uh, is is known for, among other th- other things, the the Lumascape, which uh, this is a podcast, so we'll just have to have everyone conjure up what the Lumascape <laughs> looks like. It's that that chart that kind of organizes and makes sense of the vast digital advertising landscape. So that's that's Terry, um, and so I, I kind of wanted to start with with this idea. There's there's a lot of talk right now, and uh, you know, sort of about new players in the media and and advertising M and A space. So. You know, when you were an online ad firm, maybe a few years ago, you could you could go public, you could get bought by Facebook or Yahoo, and now looks like the public market's maybe not so great. Uh, Facebook and, and Yahoo, there are some new players there. Um, you know, the, the AT and T's and Verizon's of the world kind of wrestling. So that's sort of broadly what we wanted to t- to start with. I'm, I'm curious, sort of your take on on what the landscape looks like right now for sort of advertising M and A. So I think we're in a state right now of a pretty severe dichotomy where uh, on one hand, I like the fact that you started off with the most positive thing about the sector, uh, which is the diversity, the breadth and depth of the of the buyer universe. But but it's not fun and games for everybody. If we were to define the lens here as sort of advertising and marketing technology companies, um, I think on one hand, You've got um, a an investor perception of a subsector that uh, is a loser. Um, you've got companies trading at sub one multiple of revenue, uh, which doesn't seem to make much sense unless you your assumption is that they're going to be under per, you know uh, perpetual uh, margin pressure and or will never uh, achieve profitability. But we're talking about companies that actually make money uh, that are. Um, being valued at less than one times revenue, um, you've got a, a dearth of venture capital, uh, basically a shut off in and around. We saw the inflection point really take place in Q1 of 2015, where what I would say is sort of ubiquitous money for undifferentiated companies in the sector was was shut off. Now, that doesn't mean that no companies in the sector can be funded. In fact, we've seen dozens of companies get funded at considerable rates since then. 
but in each case, you can point to a scalable, differentiable um, business model. I think the and you're and you're right to your reference the public markets, uh, but for a recent uh, offering that was uh, highly successful, have largely been shut. Not only just for ad tech and martech, but for technology in general, it's not been favorable. And so that has become less of an opportunity for companies that have decided that they want to they want to exit. Um, and look, there are probably good fundamental reasons for some of this uh, uh, investor concern, uh, one of which and, you know, and we've published materials that talk about a bunch of issues that plague the sector right now. But the two most important ones, in fact, uh, we characterize them as existential, are uh, the notion of the digital duopoly, uh, Google and Facebook usurping uh, so much con- uh, of the share of the growth of the marketplace, uh, and, uh, and fragmentation. And um, I think it's the, you know, the Loomiscapes probably do as bad or good a job as any in picturing the latter. This, the, f- the, the notion that we have, at least by our count, over 4,000 companies most of which are venture uh, capital-backed, uh, that are seeking to eke out a, a living somewhere playing as an intermediary between uh, a marketer and a, um, and a consumer. And usually it's by making money uh, either on the media or on data. And so that feels like it's uh, not sustainable. I'm sure we'll get into the, the Google and the Facebook uh, duopoly, but in terms of the public markets, for the longest time there was this um, refrain that well, investors, Wall Street, they just don't really understand ad tech or you know online advertising, and that might explain some of the struggles that the companies in the space that have gone public have faced. We're now sort of like two and a half years into it, and that doesn't necessarily hold up as much anymore. So, what do you think are the root problems? You know, either maybe investors kind of do have it right, and and that this isn't. You know, is it a problem with the business model, or is it a, a larger, a larger issue? Yeah, I, I, I actually think there's some validity to the notion of uh, of the complication or the the difficulty in understanding. I mean, if you look back at the early uh, IPOs of ad tech companies in what I'll call the second wave, because remember, you know, DoubleClick was an ad tech company in uh, that went private in I think it was '03. So, so public investors hadn't seen an ad tech company until we started seeing a wave. Uh, in 2011, uh, uh, 12, and then 13. So you're talking about like the, the rocket fuels of the world? And- uh, well, Millennial, Millennial. Tremor, uh, Yumi, Rocket Fuel uh, was one of the later uh, ones to go in that wave, where basically uh, we had a classic case of sort of adverse selection S1 filers uh, in the sense that if you could take a range, a spectrum, from media to technology – the companies that had achieved sufficient scale to go public first were the media-centric companies, Millennial, uh, Trevor Yumi. And and yet, if you read their S1s, it sounded like the second coming. I mean, you know, fantastic digital technology assets, you know. And, uh, and the problem was that, you know, because they were largely – they weren't even the programmatic companies, right? They were basically companies that were still uh, managing their like spend based. campaign by yeah. campaign on, you know, an I.O. basis. And that was, you know, bound to disappoint. And sure enough, when it did, um, you know, the, the entire category, I think, got, got uh, blackened. So just describe for our listeners sort of the, the difference between the business model that you 
just described, which was sort of the the media based one versus I guess sort of the the technology based one which other companies in the sector have sort of arguably done done a bit better with yeah you could think of it as a progression right so on on one end of the spectrum you have the more traditional uh, media like business models where you have to go out and sell every campaign so that's a that's a fight you know you got to win the RFP and on a campaign by campaign basis and it's highly competitive and you may have a particular special sauce that you bring to the equation but but you it's very manual in terms of the process of garnering that spend um you then uh, prosecute that and and what's interesting is all media or many media companies now uh, obtain their inventory from these exchanges, from the programmatic exchanges. Just because you uh, obtain your inventory from that source doesn't make you a programmatic company. Uh, how you sell it is, in fact, uh, the definition of, of whether you're programmatic or not. So, so you got the traditional uh, folks, and they have just a you know, certain amount of operating leverage. Then there's the programmatic media companies that uh, don't arbitrage the media. They don't buy media cheaply and then sell it at a higher rate. They are uh, instead charging a transaction fee for the media that's purchased. Uh, They have a cleaner uh, uh, income statement uh, because they're not they're not counting media in their revenues. So you could assume it would it would be analogous to the net revenue of uh, 1.0 sort of ad network or, or media company, uh, and those revenues tend to be a little bit more predictable because you're not doing it on an IO basis. It's um, selling per transaction as opposed to taking a. A cut of the transaction. So, what are companies that, that do that? Correct. So, so, so that would be the trade desk. Okay. Uh, that would actually be Rubicon uh, on the supply side, um, as uh, as examples. Not to mention, you know, TubeBogle. Um, and surprisingly, you know, those companies as well have been tainted with the same ad tech as Terrible Brush and have traded down. Um, they were trading at the in the sort of two to three times net revenue basis. And now Rubicon, with its troubles, is actually trading at less than one times uh, net revenue, which is seemingly preposterous. Um, and then all the way to the end of the spectrum, you've got technology companies that actually, you know, while they touch media because they're intermediaries of media-centric transactions, they don't actually charge on 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 that basis. And they're charging in one of two ways, either a transaction fee uh, based on uh, the volume, or they charge a sort of software license fee on a monthly basis. Uh, and quite frankly, their choice between the two all just depends on how their customers uh, the nature of uh, the service that they're that they're offering, and that's much more predictable. And investors like that kind of business a lot more. Um, a good example of a company in in that sector would be AppNexus, um, which uh, is largely transaction, um, but um, but is charging a technology fee, uh, and it tends to be a smaller sort of take rate, a smaller percentage of the overall spend that's running through their pipes that they take as their as their revenue. So uh, all of this is, is to say it's you know, obviously it's a crowded environment. You mentioned the clout of the Google's and Facebook of the world, um, or just not of the world, just those two really. <laughs> those uh, are the Google's. Those are the Google's and Facebooks of the world. Um, what was that stat that you that you were talking about earlier, Jack, in terms of the digital advertising market? Well, I think you alluded to this earlier. Basically, all of the growth is going to to those two players. I mean, obviously. Digital advertising as a sector is is growing pretty healthily, but it's all being sucked up by 
those two players, which is leaving. Right. What does that mean for the broader? Potentially a, a, a smaller pool for the for the rest of the guys that that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, look, the the great news about the sector is that organically it's growing very vibrantly. I mean, you know, here we are into whatever, 10 or 15 years of consistent growth in either the high teens or the low 20s. And, you know, it's one thing when this was $10 billion to spend grown at 20%, yippee, yahoo. It's now it's now $100 billion growing at 16%. That means every single year another $16 billion industry is being tacked on to, you know, digital uh, ad spend. And that's just on the advertising side. I, I sometimes like to, you know, I, I get frustrated when people always constantly think of things in just the advertising context because, you know, with data, with software, the lens is really marketing. And there's, uh, there's a lot, even a lot more spend when you, when you look at that. But let's just stick with uh, advertising for a second. So we now have this massive uh, increase in, in spend every uh, single year, and that's due to the um, obvious reasons of uh, continued migration away from print, away from uh, other channels to the, to the digital channels. Um, that's great. Terrific. Um, the fact that um, uh, I think it came out in Q1, Morgan Stanley issued a report suggesting that 85% of the increase was going to Google and Facebook. And then we saw from second quarter numbers, not perfect because we don't have, it's not exactly Apple's to apples, but it may in fact be the case that they're usurping, in fact, more than 100% of the growth. In other words, everyone else is actually shrinking. Now, remember, everyone else shrinking uh, groups those those two prior groups I, I, I referenced. So there's the old school guys that are doing it, you know, the IO way. They should be losing share. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, we talked about program, we talk about programmatic media or programmatically bought uh, advertising. It didn't even exist in 2009. It, it, it barely was so nascent. It barely shows up on a chart. And today, close to 75% of all media in display, in digital display, is bought programmatically. So that trend line has been phenomenal. 2014, it turned out, was the inflection year that really spiked up. But remember, as that spiked up, Everybody else selling it the old way was was you could just take that chart and flip it on its on its head. Actually, came down heavily. Uh, I know I was selling an I/O based uh, advertising technology company at the time. We missed numbers by forty percent for the quarter. Still managed to close it. Um, but but uh, so 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 there's going to be a uh, regardless of you know the uh, the total pie. There's going to be winners and losers. So there's going to be a lot of market share trading back and forth. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll have more with Terry right after this. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. 
Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Terry Kawaja. Um, so, Terry, you just touched on this, but I wanted to ask you, sort of broadly zooming out a little bit, to what extent there's been pushback in the market against some of the sort of advertising intermediaries that we've been talking about. Um, there have been some concerns on the advertiser side around sort of fraud and uh, transparency and measurement and some of that stuff. Uh, and on the publisher side as well, sort of the conventional wisdom perhaps is that some of these guys have sort of depressed margins for publishers, depressed revenue for publishers. Um, and meanwhile, publishers are sort of gravitating towards sponsored content and, you know, perhaps away from display advertising. Um, so to what extent do those challenges sort of pose a threat to to some of these companies? Yeah, so so with the rise of programmatic bot media has come a whole litany of, of issues um, that you allude to that range from, you know, ad blocking to viewability, you know, uh, uh, to uh, fraud. Um, uh, and, you know, think about it. You know, marketer is paying for every impression that an ad gets served against. Um, turns out, some of those ads don't get seen by human beings. That's bad. Uh, last time I checked, bots in you know Belarus have not purchased any goods or services. If they did, it wouldn't be a problem. Um, then of the ones that do get served to, uh, and and by the way, it's always a cat and mouse game with the with the fraud uh, players. I think it's one of the reasons why you're seeing a, a migration towards a, a, a different way of counting. Instead of looking at anonymous, uh, targeting towards anonymous people, you, you target towards known people. And you get rid of that whole fraud uh, issue to start with. Um, and or, as you mentioned, uh, you cut specific deals with either directly with publishers or with companies that represent pub- well-known publishers in a tight group where you're, you're, you know uh, that the inventory is quality and that there's a real uh, human audience there. The second part is, a, is, a, is a, and hopefully, by the way, fraud, there should be like no one saying fraud is good, right? Everyone should be against fraud, and it's just a matter of, you know, rooting it, rooting it out. Uh, viewability is, is, a, is a more of an intangible in the sense that um, whether an ad is viewable, quote unquote, or not, depends on your definition. It's in the eye beholder or or of the platform who dictates that you know four seconds on my platform represents my view exactly um or three seconds or one second and you know so you've got a variability of 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 standards which i know frustrates the marketers because they're like hey i i I just want an impact here you know uh but the marketers have their own standards or at least some of the agencies do as well they do. It's and, not just and coming from the platform. They're coming out and saying, I don't care what you say, that my ad has to be, you know, one quarter viewable I want for three seconds. Yeah. No, I want, I want the, the, I only want to pay when my clients uh, uh, have their ad seen by an actual human being, the whole thing for at least, you know, X. And, and these things need to, need to get worked out. I think when we, we saw with the, the Facebook uh, uh, issue around uh, video uh, view, views and, and measurement is um, is obviously one where you know all sides have to agree in order for there to be a currency upon which to build a business. You know the beauty about the television world is uh, more simplistic as you might make it seem from a targeting standpoint is nobody has 
well, until recently, has questioned the value of a GRP for like, you know, 60 years. Uh, of course, now that, uh, tell, you know, of course, as soon as I say that, you know, I realize that it, that doesn't hold anymore. So for, it had a good 60-year run, the GRP, um, uh, the gross ratings point, uh, because the only way you could see TV was on your TV. Of course, that's entirely changing now with different devices. Well, you mentioned sort of the 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 future of TV. I know this is something that you've talked about before, but in the wake of the Time Warner AT&T deal, one of the things that, that AT&T said was that this would sort of help expedite the idea that you could uh, move beyond maybe the GRP and really into the sort of like mythical addressable television where Jack and I are seeing different ads, even though we're neighbors and uh, watching the same thing, et cetera. So do you think this has been talked about for like a decade in the industry that, that you could get television to this level of targeting. Do you think deals like AT&T, Time Warner do help uh, move us in that direction? Or what do you think technologically has to happen really to get there? So, yeah, I think it's, so I've been doing this now for over two decades, and I'm pretty sure it's been that entire time that people <laughs> have been talking about the nirvana of addressable TV. Look, we, we, we live in a world where, um, you know, today there's only four distributors that can actually physically do addressable TV, and they're only allowed uh, to apply that level of addressability and targeting to the two minutes of local um, ad insertion uh, per hour. So so, so it's it's really experimental and, and fairly nascent. I think there's less than a billion dollars that's spent on addressable TV. It's inevitable. Of course it's going to come. I mean, it's, you know, by the way, as you look at all these things, you know, whether you have in theory and then it has to manifest itself in practice. But if you have a more efficient and more effective way to advertise where you're utilizing both the data available about your audience and some software to help you manipulate that data better, then it's like it's like uh, um, it's like learning uh, evolution uh, versus creationism. No one ever goes back. Right. Well, I guess Donald yeah, so Trump. This is yeah, yeah, in the time That's of a whole new Trump. can of worms. Yeah, exactly. This is going to uh, uh, come out after the election, so. Okay. Well, but, uh, hopefully uh, we're live in a world where <laughs> science matters and and these uh, old uh, handy old notions uh, uh, you know go away. It, so so my point is if you make a data available to people to make choices about how to target uh, advertising, then yes, they will they will do that. I mean, so it, it likely shouldn't go back. Whether whether AT and T, the Time Warner deal itself uh, propagates that uh, is unclear. But uh, stay tuned. I think we will see uh, some activity in this area where large, uh, capable, linear. Uh, providers of video uh, will, in fact, avail themselves of the kind of technologies that, yes, have been around for a while, but its time has sort of come. And by the way, you know, there's a great analogy to be made with programmatic. Uh, we, We were talking in for a long time as well about programmatic media. It just didn't happen until uh, uh, the inflection point was 2010, and then it took off. Uh, and then it took off, you know, it's inflected up a couple of times since then. What were the catalysts that drove that, and how could we analogize that to the addressable TV world? Well, uh, by my take, there's three things that, that have to happen. There has to be demand for it. Um, and I think in the case of addressable TV, I've spoken to enough agency folks, uh, you know, folks that matter, like Erwin Gottlieb, who runs Group M, um, that, um, yes, uh, clients want it. 
uh, and the agencies are going along with it. So it feels like there's demand there. You don't have to worry about the supply because in TV – there's uh, there's uh, ample uh, well there's scarce supplies it's valuable supply, um, but then there needs to be the technology. Well, it, the technology. So the third item is not just the availability of the technology, but the the technology has to be in scalable hands. So it turns out that you know if there's technology that does a whiz bang job of of uh, treating a, uh, of addressing uh, linear television, it doesn't matter that it's in the hands of a startup. It's only going to get so much scale. It has to be in the hands of a large provider. And the same thing happened in programmatic. Uh, uh, when the startups, you know, had this technology, so what? When Google started buying those companies and then uh, availing their exchange marketplace, Comcast has made some acquisitions in in this space as well, right? I mean, they there are there there have been some video. there there have been uh, there has been some activity. And what's interesting is you could map the activity to the weakness of the upfront. So so in fourteen there was a weak upfront, in fifteen it was actually a down upfront. Uh, well, so now there was a strong upfront. So in theory, maybe they won't they will it, avoid well, it this year. Well, deals have pulled back. So yeah. you, you saw a, a, a flurry of deals, and and look, the motivations here by these incumbent television players are really defensive in nature, right? I mean, they're to they're signal saying, to Wall Street that we're making plays in hey, this space. Hey, you know, we're hedging our bets. Uh, we're 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 looking at that. But but the real visceral drivers of activity is when it's fear, uh, and and that really will come about when you get a week up front. So it'll be interesting to see this uh, upfront coming up in 2017, uh, where there's not an election cycle, there's not an Olympics. Yeah, those excuses kind of go away this year, right? Yep, I think. Uh, I think or no, if it's down, you say, bit. well, last year we had the election and the. So anyway, it's really 2018 that we yeah. want that we'll have, and then there'll no, be another election. But if it's weak, and I think uh, as well, all you have to do is look at the selling propositions. We've seen, uh, we've noted a complete role reversal uh, between the digital uh, folks selling selling digital video uh, versus the um, uh, the more traditional TV folks. Normally, the traditional TV folks trot out their top talent, you know, they get their stars on stage and they promote the content. It's all about the premium now content. Now it's their, like, data offering. And now all they're talking about is, and, and by the way, in the digital folks, usually it's addressability and targeting. Well, well we've had role stars. reversal <laughs> where where the traditional TV folks, what are they talking about? They're talking about data and attribution and uh, what are the uh, over-the-top Netflix and Amazon folks talking about? They're talking about all the Emmys that they won and their fantastic new original content. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had like the Vulcan mind meld between the two. Well, to that point, I mean, talking about addressable TV, to what extent do you think highly targeted advertising has sort of played a role in turning consumers off to advertising ultimately? I mean, you know, there are Snapchats of the world who... As like an impetus for ad blocking even. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned ad blocking. I feel like, you know, and obviously there's a generational sort of difference on that front as well um, I think it depends on the I think that does play a role I think it depends on the sophistication so you know sadly the digital ad channel promised all these great things you were going to have relevant ads that mattered to us and we were going to enjoy them and what did we what get we, have is a pair of shoes we get retargeting ads for yeah. something we've already bought I um, mean that's pretty that's pretty uh, low bar and so it's no wonder that the whole ad blocking phenomenon, and look, let's face it, you know, it is a construct 
of the crappy consumer uh, experience they've had. And we have to be really, really careful about that. We don't want to screw up a good thing uh, or whatever, a tolerable thing uh, in some cases uh, by make, by turning you know con- consumers off. And let's face it, when the TV's on and the thing that's hanging on your, on your wall, um, you can go to a second screen or go to the bathroom anyway. So the more relevant the And ad, Nielsen never knew, uh, you know, either way. But now, now I guess you sort of, it seems that in response to the ad ad blocking phenomenon, the, the the ad community seems to think that if you you know make advertising great again, that people will turn off their ad blockers. And I just like don't really. I think we maybe have jumped the shark there. And the people who are ad blocking are. I mean, if it's if it's a choice between ads and no ads, does it matter how good the advertising is? That's right. the question I always ask. Right. Well, that gets to a, a point that um, Professor Scott Galloway said at, at one of my conferences. He said, look, guys, effectively, we're living in a world with especially with, um, uh, you know, content on, on demand where advertising is a tax that only the poor have to pay. So, you know, if your skinny bundle or in the case of um, – you know, the um, DirecTV 100 channels for $35. I wouldn't call that a skinny bundle. I wouldn't call that a traditional bundle. It's maybe, I don't know, a size four bundle. Um, but but I don't know. To, you know, how many people are going to watch ads if, if they can pay for, uh, you know, Showtime and HBO and Netflix, et cetera? Do you think, you know, things like ad blocking, I mean, we're talking about transparency and fraud and sort of the, the rebate issue and some of these big, questions in the online ad world what kind of effect does that have in the, for the m a environment in, in your world i mean do, does it or is this just sort of another another talking point for for people to be concerned about i don't know i you know this subsector is famous for its jargon and it's you know getting wrapped up in its own issues i think there are i think there are issues that are real issues for players within the industry, but they're intercomp- interplayer issues. So header bidding is a classic one where does that matter to the consumer? Hell no. Uh, does matter to the publisher, right? The, you know, with the application of more transparency, they get better yield. Um, but, but it just means that there's going to be a transfer of you know, margin or VIG from one set of players to another set of players. I, I don't get that vexed by those kinds of issues. I'd put transparency in that same issue. It's a B2B issue. It's important for the players within the industry. But if you think about the, the broader impacts um, to consumers and to marketers who, let's face it, I view those two groups are the only two principles in the in the ad equation, right? Everyone the marketer, else is a middle the man. consumer. Everyone else is an agent. The agencies are agents. The tech companies, the data companies, and yes, the publishers are agents. We're sitting here, right in the belly of the beast, of the Wall Street Journal. This is a, an agency play. It's you're not a principal. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, well, so I, you know. I guess broadly in the digital media environment, I know you got you have a, a venture arm, your, your firm as well, right? Uh, we we largely advise, and and there's our areas where we invest as well. I'm curious what what you what your temperature is on the digital media fundraising environment. We we're talking about it a little bit earlier, but there seems to be this sense that it's, it's sort of really hard to raise money. But to your point earlier, there there are new firms cropping up, and it, it seems like maybe that's that's not the case. So what what is your uh, take sort of now what, what the fundraising environment is like yeah so um hist- i mean 
since I've been doing these Lumascapes since 2009, you know, they've only grown, right? There's only been more companies, and even on a net basis. So if you take a look, if you factor in the failures and the and the acquired companies, there's still more showing up every year uh, 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 that are than are uh, consolidated. We're likely to see that change in the sense that. Um, you know, a lot of the plays, a lot of the ideas have been out there and funded. And I believe we will see a pullback in uh, initial, at least, uh, funding of some of these companies, which I think is a healthy. It, there should be a high level, higher level of scrutiny, a higher bar uh, for these folks to uh, to hit. Um, when, when you have too much venture capital, and that means you got the leaders in venture capital who understand the opportunity in the sector, plus the, the Me Too's and the Also Rands, and oh my God, I got to have one of those since Excel has one, I want to have one uh, in my portfolio. That's not healthy, and, and I'm not sure it harms that many people other than, you know, when a marketer looks at the ecosystem and sees thousands of companies, says to themselves, uh, he or she will say, oh, my gosh, you know, how do we manage our, our, our way through this? And that's the one regrettable thing about the Lumiscapes. When you look at them, you, you, you get a bit of a headache. Um, it's good to have uh, it's good to have independently funded Petri dishes so that innovation can come from any uh, particular angle. But after a while, you know, and by the way, same as almost every other industry and subsector has gone through, there is a natural uh, innovation period and wave, uh, and that never does ever fully end. You always get new company formation, but an industry will go through a natural period of consolidation so that you pare down to a number of, and it'll vary from industry to industry, what is the sort of natural uh, amount of competition that is uh, still provides enough competition and innovation and yet and yet is more logical and we're bound to head in that direction it's one of the reasons why i formed uh, luma so when do you think that'll be because i mean this is another thing like people have been talking about this space consolidating again it feels like for you know the best part of five years at this point and to steve's point like it doesn't seem necessarily to be happening i think you said you track four thousand companies now i'm sure that's more than you tracked three or four year, years ago yeah, I get the I get the question all the time. Hey, Terry, if if venture capital dried up in Q one of two thousand fifteen, as you say, and by the way, as the data points out, um, you know, why aren't we seeing more failures? Why aren't we seeing more capitulations? By the way, I define a capitulation as a company that sells for a small amount of money to another company. So it's it's in effect a, a failure. But um, uh, and and it turns out that if you're intermediating spend in a growing category. You, you can hang on for a long time. You can, you know, cut some heads uh, and reduce your burn. Um, so long as you're taking a piece of dollars that are flowing through your system, it's amazing how long you can extend life. And if you think of companies that naturally fund for 18 to 24 months at a time, well, Q1 of 2015 means we're just getting around to the failures now. So at some point you get scurvy. At some point, it sets in, and and what happens is, and we're seeing it. I mean, so this is we, we've seen, you know, uh, uh, about a dozen uh, companies in the sector flame out this year. You don't quite, those don't quite get the headlines in Wall Street Journal, such like the uh, the massive uh, exits, but. Um, we're starting to see failures. We're hearing from boards that are panicking, saying basically we're not going to fund the company anymore, and it's burning, you know, three million, ten million a quarter. You know, 
those things can't perpetuate forever. Uh, so they take longer than you think because they're intermediating spend. It's not like they're trying to sell software where there's no dollars you know, naturally flowing through their system. So I once uh, described the fate of ad tech companies uh, in Steven Seagal movie titles. Uh, under siege, but hard to kill. All right, well, we'll... Uh... I guess we'll we'll have you on uh, again when when the next round of uh, capitulations. But takes can, place. but but can we end on a positive note? Sure. Steven Seagal is not a positive note. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's positive a, note. You had a Mad Men cameo. No, no, that's where we started. <laughs> uh, no, it's actually the, the the point you started on, and and this one I think is is important, and that is that this sex. So so despite all that death and carnage and companies failing and and so forth, that's for the vast majority. But for a select few, which a select few uh, out of a, sec- f- a select few percentage out of four thousand still means a decent number of companies are going to have fantastic exits, uh, and in part it's because companies, well outside of what we would naturally think of as the usual suspect buyers of the you know the Googles and the AOLs of the world, have been attracted to the technology capabilities of companies in this sector. And and I boil it and by the way we're seeing, you know, deep-pocketed buyers from at least a dozen different industries ranging from, you know, CRM software marketing cloud companies to uh telcos to media companies to uh agencies to data companies to tech services companies to um consumer companies. We may see credit card companies getting into this space. And their rationales tend to be somewhat different, but 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 related by the same kernel, and that is the consistent element is they are all companies that manage large consumer networks, and in order to make right time decisioning about consumer data, they need they need capabilities that at scale can parse that consumer data and come up with decisions. And it turns out that the companies that are best developed that capability are in ad tech and martech, which is why. Uh, I believe we will continue to see this is extremely healthy, right? When you have not only a uh, a deep uh, universe, buyer universe, but a broad buyer universe. Um, and so that hopefully will keep the winners and the differentiated companies in in the business of uh, fantastic exits, which you will write about in the headlines. <laughs> Yeah, just in case any of our listeners were really worried about all the ad tech and marketing tech CEOs out there, they'll they'll be okay. They'll be okay. All right. Well, uh, all right. We'll we'll keep an eye out on it. Thanks uh, so much, Terry, for coming by. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time on the WSJ Media Mix podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.